Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery, and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, Hello and welcome to the Hopcast Book Show. It is... Drum roll, please. <laughs> Episode 100. And Episode 100? Yeah, they said it would never happen. They did. They did. Skeptics. Uh, yeah, but we've done it. 100th episode. And it is our great delight to be able to introduce ourselves in a moment. But let's just get it out of the way. We have a wonderful guest this week. It is none other than Ellie Griffiths. Fantastic. It was fantastic, wasn't it? I mean, you, you're going to hear it soon anyway, but we had the best interview. That we yeah. It, it, well, like all of our interviews, if you've listened to the podcast <laughs> regularly, you know that we branch off during interviews, just following our nose and where the conversation goes. And it is a, the perfect example of the style at which we deploy during our interviews. It really was. I have to just break completely and say I've just spotted a Fisher-Price telephone just like the one I had 48-odd years ago. Yeah, they are brilliant, aren't they? They're timeless classics. Um, we ought to explain where we are, but first of all, let's explain who we are. We are Hobet Books. We are UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Crime. Mysteries. Thrillers. And suspense. And my name is Adrian Hobart. And my name is Rebecca Collins. And you did the hand flourish just like I did. I did. And we're actually, you can hear the hubbub in the background and the sound of, of toys for toddlers. We are in the bosom of my family. We are. This is a unique occasion. This is the first time that my side of the family have almost all been together in one place because my sister Catherine is here with her wife, Jessie, and two beautiful little boys. Adorable. Adorable. Teddy, I want to take them home. Teddy is only 18 months. And Louis, who's having a, a good feed at the moment, is just four months. And Teddy's having a nap, I and think. this afternoon is the first time I've met them. Because, of course, Kat and Jessie are based in Australia and haven't been able to travel. No, for, we were just like saying, forever. three years. Yeah. And in that time, we've had a pandemic and they've had two children. Amazing. <laughs> Even better than that. My son James is here, which I know I talk about him a lot because we always go to football day and then afterwards I'm recording a thing. And of course, the last time I went to the football, disaster struck. Well, something struck. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I'm very glad to say that that part of my anatomy has now recovered. I, I wouldn't know. Uh, and the other exciting thing is that my parents are here too. Now, normally my dad lives alone here in Disley, just outside Stockport, because my mum is sadly, um, well, she's labouring with alzheimer's and so lives in a home but she's here too i know it's a, and it is three years since all these people were together the last time yeah so it's almost like a mini christmas celebration it, it you know it's just wonderful we had a bit of cake we've had coffee and we've all had a hold of the babies and it's just been brilliant so and somebody teared up a little bit i didn't did they? i honestly i burst into <laughs> tears i was holding little louis four months old in my arms uh that baby smell that you know i love 
And I was just thinking back to the time when I was holding his mum when she was born 30-odd years ago and thinking one day I'll be holding her children in my arms as I'm holding her. And this is, you did. that was the fulfilment of that kind it's of... It's like a circle, isn't it? Yeah. Sort of, yeah. yeah, I'm tearing up now thinking it, it about it. It was very sweet. Yeah, it was very, very special. Uh, well, look, this is a special edition, the 100th episode. We are so excited to have got to this milestone. And the podcast has gone from strength to strength. We're so proud of it. We started off as the Hobcast. In fact, I'll tell you what. Why don't we hear what we sounded like on that oh, very no, no, first no, no, episode? No, 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 <laughs> Here you go. No, no, no. You'll have to listen to this. The first episode sounded something like this. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the Hobcast, which is the new podcast from Hobet Books. We're a small independent publisher based in the UK, publishing, let me see, thrillers, mystery, crime, suspense, and anything else that really tickles our fancy. But those are the main categories at the moment. We have 10 authors, many of whom you'll be meeting over the next few weeks and over the years to come as we launch the Hobcast. And we hope that this podcast will appeal to people in the independent uh, publishing community, in the wider community, and also those authors who are perhaps starting out or want to join us, or indeed if you are thinking about doing what we're doing, which is launching a creative business from scratch in this difficult period during lockdown three, as it is in the UK, and the pandemic in general. So uh, let's give you a little bit of detail about who we are. I'm Adrian Hobart. I used to work for the BBC and I packed that in last March, so just a few months ago, and have embarked on this crazy idea of launching Hobeck. And you are? I am. I am Rebecca Collins. Um, I've worked with books for over 20 years. I've been reading books since I was five. I live, breathe books. I love books. So this is the perfect job for me. And I'm sure, ladies and gentlemen, you would agree that Rebecca is a brilliant podcaster. She was, at start with. I was terrified. That you were first terrified. Time. You were pretty good, but you're really, really good now. Oh, thank you. And you're quite good too. Well, a bit of practice. <laughs> but we're so proud of what we've achieved with the, the podcast. In fact, you know, Hobeck Books itself. Uh, just this week, in fact, we went to a little Christmas fair. And uh, that was held at your son's school. Yes. Two of your boys are Habidash's at the school. Adams. Yeah, in Newport, in Shropshire. And, uh, okay, it wasn't the busiest occasion, but we wanted to capture a little bit of the spirit of our little stall as we had uh, all of our books out on display, and we sold a few in this Christmas thing. So, again, have a listen to this. Well, here we are in a, a very, very reflective sound environment of the Haberdashers Adams gym. Sports hall, yes. Sports hall, yeah, yeah. Officially. So we've got, a, we've got a climbing wall behind us. Uh, what are we doing here, you're probably wondering? Well, I've probably introduced that already, but we're in front of us we have a table with an orange blanket, uh, Hobeck colours, and all of our Hobeck books out on display. We do, and we're here to uh, take part in the annual Christmas fair. So it's a bit of a departure for us, and we've had fun getting this thing dressed up. If you go to our website, no doubt, we'll have, or sign up for our newsletter, we'll have a picture of that. Uh, available to you just to show what we did or just look on Twitter I've done it already oh have you <laughs> <laughs> of course you have um, no it's fun I mean you know, this is uh, great fun we're about to hear the band striking up that the most um, in tune bunch of musicians I've ever heard in my life uh, but so uh, no it's fun I mean this, this is a nice little community occasion and it's nice to share our story with the people around us 
close to where we work from. And we have songs and books too, which is brilliant. Yeah, we have one or two. Or oh. three. Now, I believe that is God rest ye merry gentlemen, but <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave you with that. sweet little occasion and we managed to sell a book to the head teacher yeah we did yeah <laughs> we did indeed uh it was yes i killed her by harry fisher harry fisher yeah and we had free mulled wine at the end and free samosas which is yeah. a bonus yeah absolutely made, made it worth going um so that was that was delightful um we normally do a news section here but it just doesn't feel celebratory because always there's some moan about amazon doing something to us or to the marketplace in general or, yeah. or penguin random house being you know whatever they do uh let's not go there no week. i let's... think yeah the, the the economic climate is irrelevant today <laughs> yeah it's a celebration so we're gonna we're, let's just cast our minds back then to the 100 episodes that we've we've done oh wow yes okay um and it's on it's you know we love all our guests but is there anyone that who who was the one you were most nervous about interviewing? Oh, uh, the most nervous has to be, without a doubt, Ian Rankin. And it's no reflection on Ian Rankin because once we started talking to him, he was completely chilled and very down to earth. But uh, we and we only had about what ten minutes to prepare, really, because we just yeah. we didn't know whether we'd get an interview, and we he said yes. And so in, in that ten minutes, I went from fairly relaxed to. Oh my God! I'm going to be talking to Ian Ranking. So yes, I was the most nervous, definitely. How about you? Yeah, that, yeah, definitely. That was the well. It was a nervous occasion because it was Harrogate, our first one. And we uh, hadn't been going that long, no, had we? we hadn't. The podcast was relatively new; it was only five or six months old, and we hadn't got our confidence. To be honest, we still go to events and feel a little bit trepidatious about approaching people for interviews and and getting things sorted out. So that was a big deal. Mm. Yeah, definitely the most nervous. And we still haven't been confident enough to speak to Val McDermott. <laughs> Do you know what? I think we're never going to get there. <laughs> oh, I'm sure we will. And that's, that's something to look forward to for episode 250 or 500. But, um, you know, that's a few years ahead now. But, yeah, that was, that was nerve-wracking. Um, in terms of the one that I laughed most during, and we laugh a lot during our interviews... There's no uh, question I know who that is. Well, like, for me, it was the one that we didn't actually put out because something went wrong with the data stick or yeah. something, wasn't it? It was the first attempt at the second interview with A.B. Morgan. Yeah, that's We were a little right, bit rude yeah. about chickens. Yeah. Oh, we were absolutely rolling about it. We'd had a drink, I think, and, and we just, well, just one. Uh, and it was absolutely, yeah, riotous in yeah. our back garden. And we ended up having to re-record, didn't we? We did. That was the technical issue it's probably a good thing actually because uh, we, we were a bit rude about chickens we were uh i think the one when we i was in wales during that uh, ill-fated golf trip to uh the nefin i think it was nefin the, yeah the lim peninsula and it was chucking it down for five days solid and it, the place was just flooded mm-hmm. so i was in the hotel room and we joined up with abby and Mukherjee. oh that was that was a fabulous one wasn't it and i was a bit nervous about that because i thought something could go wrong maybe you won't have a strong enough signal or you mm. know so I was a bit nervous, but he was a delight. He was funny and intelligent and easy to talk to, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, so. he, he really entered the spirit. So, yeah, and, and indeed, when we spoke to Vasim Khan, his, his partner in crime on uh, <laughs> Red Hot Chili Writers, um, just as fun and, and just as charming to, to speak to as well. So, look, 
everybody who's taken part in the 100 episodes. That's our authors, our associates who've worked with us, either cover designers or editors, and indeed the many star guests that we promised at the beginning of the show that we've had. We've had so many amazing names and there are many more to come, oh, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, I look forward to what we're going to do. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think we've built something of a reputation for, for, for doing interviews that, well, everyone comes off saying, you know, I don't think they're being polite. They really enjoyed it. And, and that's for first timers. We've had a few who've been really nervous. An example, uh, not so long ago, last week, uh, we had Rebecca Miller. Yeah, was, I think she, she was quite nervous, wasn't she? Uh, Lucy Hooft uh, said she was nervous. And her episode is our most downloaded to date, remarkably, <laughs> uh, which is fantastic. But, you know, it's it, it's about, you know, we, we're sharing everything that we do, whether it's good, bad, indifferent, um, wonderful. And we are sharing, building a platform, we hope, for people to share their creativity and their message and just, you know, enjoy the conversation. Because actually, if you think about it, it's the only time of the week as we are so isolated where we are, where we have conversations of that depth and level on a regular basis. Yeah, it's like going down the pub without the pub. Yeah. And indeed, Malcolm Price, if you're listening, <laughs> we will come and see you in Oxford and, uh, as promised, have a few jars with you uh, uh, very soon. In fact, we need to, we've got to feedback on something that he's done I for know, us, I so. know. Um, and I was actually in Oxford on Monday, but it, I was, it was such a, a quick trip to Oxford that I wouldn't have had a chance to seek him out no, unfortunately. No, that was your your, uh, your, your freelancing day job um, <laughs> that, that took you to Oxford anyway let's get into the interview with Ellie Griffiths I know you know we've jabbered enough already about 100 episodes la 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 uh, let's talk to Ellie now Ellie joined us from her home in Saltdean and indeed I took you to Saltdean when we were down in Brighton just to see the Lido which was covered in, in planking but as you'll hear in this interview Good news, folks. If you haven't seen the Salt Dean Lido in its glory, just go onto Google and have a look because it's an Art Deco masterpiece of a, of a swimming pool down on the on the seafront. It's amazing, uh, and uh, Ellie is leading the charge in terms of saving it for the future, which I think is fantastic. But of course, she is a marvelous crime writer, prolific too, with uh, some almost thirty books out in the marketplace and different under different guises. And um, you know, she really has along with a number of other big names, defined the UK crime scene. And as she says in this interview, are we going through a platinum age at the moment? I think we are in many ways. Well, let's uh, talk to the wonderful Ellie Griffiths. Well, what a huge honour to be joined by Ellie Griffiths from her home in Salt Dean, outside Brighton, which is one of my favourite spots. So thank you so much for joining us for our 100th show. I'm really honoured to be your 100th guest. It's very exciting. Thank you. Why do we keep talking to people who live by the sea? It does seem to happen quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. There is probably a whole thing about um, crime writers liking the sea, you know. I think there's, there's a whole thesis to be made there, definitely. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, you join so I mean, There are quite a number in Brighton alone. I know. Brighton is quite a sort of literary killing place to be. Well, it really is, and there's a lovely community um, of writers here. In fact, my, my good friend William Shaw, who I, I know that you know, he, when he was a journalist, once wrote a piece about um, how everything gets slightly weirder the nearer you get from the sea. And I, and I know uh, you, you guys know Brighton, but you know, come out to the station, Brighton Station, you're surrounded yeah. by kind of um, solicitors' offices and tax offices and stuff. You go down the hill and just the shops get a bit stranger. You know, you get sort of two parlours and piercing places. And when you get to the seafront, you know, there's a lot of 
wonderful and strange things. So I think that's a really interesting, an interesting thesis of Williams. But you say that, so we live in the middle of the country. We are about as far away from the sea as you can get. That means we live in a very, very weird place by that Well, theory. yes, because landlocked is also weird, isn't it? Very interesting. Everywhere's weird, though, which is fun. <laughs> well, I think if you've got an eye for it, that's absolutely true. But Brighton is just full of weird and wonderful. Well, I love Brighton. I would live there if I could. I've got to say, I mean, I know I'm biased because I've lived here since I was five. I went away to university and then came back. Um... But it is the best place to live because where else would you have a wonderful city, like vibrant, modern city, but with loads of history and near the sea and near the countryside? You know, I've got to say, I do think it's the best place to live. I, I can't argue with that. <laughs> I mean, I having having reported there for and lived there for about four years uh, and every time I go back and, and it was a bit of a it was a, a nostalgic odyssey for us to come to Fatal Shore because I was able to show Rebecca all the places that I knew. And then just, as you mentioned, Brighton Station, just across the road from it is the amazing uh, record album, which is a little corner shop with soundtracks in vinyl for sale. And it was run by a guy called George Gin. And as we found out, George kept going until he was 90. He was my neighbor, actually, when wow. I lived in Vandine. And he used to walk to work at this incredible lick. He was in his seventies at the time. Uh, and he'd run his shop uh, since the war almost. And it was just amazing to see it almost intact. Okay, new owners, but still there. And that's the sort of thing that brings me back to Brighton all the time. Characters oh, like George. Is mm. that up by the Evening Star? That, yeah. Yes, that's I right. know. Yeah, lovely. It's it's amazing, yeah. So uh, anyway, we digress. Let's <laughs> let's get let's get into the the meat of the interview. And it's such an honour to, to. First of all, we met you at, at Fatal Shore for the first time. But I have to say, we've been at so many events where you have been, and we've never had the courage to come and say hello. So that's <laughs> well, the crime that, fiction world, isn't that's it? That's on us, not on you. Uh, <laughs> well, I have to say, it's great to meet you at last. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> but you've been an inspiration to us, um, absolutely, and your career is is fantastic. But I want to take you back to the start really because you were a publisher or in publishing beforehand ah. and uh, yeah this is well obviously this, that's, it... that's our thing but um what does that give you as an author having had that background well it, it is I think it is quite an interesting thing really so yes I um I used to work at HarperCollins uh and I started I, I think as a publicity assistant did various jobs but I ended up as a editorial director for children's fiction so I was kind of in oh, charge wow. of in charge of children's fiction uh which was um you know it's it's, it's a great publishing house for, for that you know we've got the the, the nine-year estate and the c.s lewis estate and all that was uh I, i'm saying this with, with with no shade at all but this was in the days before david williams came to dominate their list so it was, it was a very sort of eclectic list in those days so what did what does it give me as a writer well i mean i i guess the first thing to say is i don't think it gives me anything in terms of editing my books you know um I, I really need an editor. And I'm so lucky because as Ellie Griffiths, I've had the same editor, Jane Wood at Quirkus, for all my books, which is really, um, really unusual. And you know, I, I think if you looked at my drafts, you wouldn't think, oh, there's an editor writing, because you know, I make all those mistakes that 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 we all make. Like, you know, people get into the somebody gets into a bus in a skirt and gets out in trousers, you know. Well, that's a different story and possibly a more interesting one. Um, or, you know, Jane would write in the margin, is it still Thursday? Because literally everything's <laughs> happened on a Thursday. So those sort of editing things, I don't think it helps. But I think where it 
does help possibly um, is that I think I have quite a good understanding of how publishing works, although of course it's been 20 odd years since I've worked in publishing and it has changed a lot. But one of the things I do appreciate is the huge team that goes behind every book. You know, I, I've worked in marketing and publicity, so I kind of know a little bit about that, or at least I know how hard they work. And I think one of the things I appreciate, um, and I hope I tell my publishers this, is when I was when in publishing, you know, if one of my editors got, um, one of my authors got a, a good review, I was so happy. I was happier for them than I am for myself. Absolutely, 100%. And it means so much to, to the publishers. Well, I, I know you're both publishers, so I, I'm sure you'll agree with this. It means so much when your author does well. And I hope I do appreciate that. I appreciate how hard everyone works for you and how important it is. Um, and, and so if something goes well for me, I am kind of happy for the team because it, it really is um, it really is a team game, isn't it? Mm. it? Really, yeah, I think that's something that authors struggle when they first come into the, you know, to be published, that they need to understand that um, their support and their, uh, their cheerleading is as important a factor in the success of a book as anything else because yes. there's nothing worse and more sapping for a team albeit the two of us and a few of our associates who, who work with us on the editing and sites and uh, cover, cover design and things like that um if people are unhappy it can really really be an anchor chain on the forward momentum of the company so yeah i think you make a very important point that you know authors you know, we want um, we want critical friends Yes, yeah, I used to be a school governor. We were always called critical friends. I was like, yes. who wants a critical friend, eh? But yes, it, and it's 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 a really a good relationship when it when it works well. It's a really good relationship, and you know, I feel extremely lucky to have published so many books. In fact, we were just talking about this being your hundredth um, mm. uh, episode, and Rebecca said, "I think hope we've counted right because I think I might have published thirty books, but I'm not sure whether that's true." <laughs> So, um, yeah, I feel very lucky to have published so many books, possibly 29, possibly 30. Well, that's interesting because we well, are, we are here. You how many we've published as a company. <laughs> he always, you always have more than I have in my head. That's true. And actually, I figured out. But that... then, he, yeah, you say, but I include the ones that aren't published yet. <laughs> how, how many, how many is it? Well, it's getting on for, I say 50, but. Um... 39, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Oh, those round numbers. I those... two yesterday, 41. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> and big shout out to them. Who did you publish yesterday? Well, we published ourselves uh, yesterday, which is the whole team, actually. We do a charity book each year. So fantastic. Cooking the Books came out yesterday, which is a collection of stories and recipes connected to those characters from from our author team uh, and the two of us contributed to, towards that too and which the other was one scary the <laughs> other one was driven by Karina Swan uh which is the second in her D.I. Payton series and uh, that's an, another cracker so yeah I mean we, we said to ourselves actually I mean you'll, you'll know this in terms of the industry even Super Thursdays and all that sort of thing in October and the Christmas rush that we would actually ignore November as a month to publish because no, and december no just december, we, no no no, no. We, i did write an email which said november and oh. december uh <laughs> because it's too busy and you know it's too noisy in the marketplace we're not going to get any coverage and it's going to be a real struggle but there we are we've published umpteen books in november haven't we yeah well shout out to you and to karina that's fantastic <laughs> well thank, <laughs> thank you, you so much thank you now in terms of, uh, it's funny because i was going to sit down and add up all your books too so i can't give you a definitive answer but uh, given that 
the first novel, uh, the Galloway series at least, came out in 2009. You have been prolific, Ellie. That's amazing. How many books? Yeah, yes. Well, I have been quite prolific, I think. And I'm I'm counting the four books that I published under my own name. So uh, we had a yes. quick chat about names at first. My real name's Domenica De Rosa. And I published four books under that name, but not crime. So they were kind of women's fiction, I guess you'd call them, sort of about family relationships, that sort of thing. So as Ellie Griffiths, yes, um, my first Ellie Griffiths book was The Crossing Places. And there's quite a few of them now. <laughs> Well, there are there are uh, fifteen to be. Uh, yes, with... fifteen. Yeah, fifteen. So uh, the fifteenth Ruth book, The Last Remains, comes out in February, and there are six Brighton mysteries, three standalones, and four children's books. I, I'm going to add them up later. <laughs> okay, good. I mean, look, let's 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 talk about Ruth then, um, which is the, the sort of cornerstone of your career at the moment. Uh, and its setting. Um, I mean, she lives in Kingsley. And I, I always get excited because I seem to have worked in a lot of bits of the country. And uh, <laughs> my my very first professional broadcasting job was uh, broadcasting on a station that uh, that was linked to where I was working. So uh, Kingsley, KLFM, as it was. I've been to Kingsley. I went to Biddles, the printer in Kingsley, on a work trip once. Oh yeah. wow! Yeah, there's quite a lot of printers in that part of the country, aren't there? There are, aren't there? Yeah, the clays, the, the, the and, clays, and, yeah. Like be beckles. Yeah, yes. it's a real printer magnet. Yeah, it is interesting. But that's, I mean, it, Norfolk is such a huge county. I don't think people appreciate it until they've been there. When you, I mean, I, I'm from Cambridge originally, so we would head off towards Norwich, and um, I, I, even as a teenager, it would be. Are we there yet? And we'd only just got past Lake and Heath. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just, oh, it, I've been it's, to RAF Lake and Heath. Yeah, it's, it's such a huge county and such variety as well. It's a huge county. And there are no motorways across it. So it's very, very slow to, to move across it. And that's something that that uh, is quite a challenge in my books because um, Ruth travels around a bit. Um, and there's only so many times you can say, oh, Ruth was stuck behind a tractor or, you know, <laughs> Ruth was in a traffic jam. Um, and and yet, yet my, my Norfolk readers say things like, my goodness, she gets so quickly from Kingsland to Norwich, which is actually a really long journey, takes mm. over an hour. And and I, I honestly don't think I've ever said it 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 is quick, but, you know, there's only so many times because I mentioned how slow it is to... No, but Norfolk is just an amazing place, as, as you know, Um as soon as I, I knew that I was going to uh, have an archaeologist as my main character, Ruth, the forensic archaeologist, yes. uh, Norfolk seemed the obvious place because it's been inhabited for such a long time. The oldest human footprints outside Africa are found at Haysborough, they're 800,000 years old, nearly a million years old. So that's how long people have lived in Norfolk, of course, until, you know, only, I think, 8,000 years ago, it was still attached to the continent it was still attached so it would have been easier to walk um but um it's got so much archaeology it's absolute um you know absolute treasure treasure trove of archaeology i i can't remember it's an insane amount of artifacts i found every week and you know that that sea uh, is a shallow sea doggerland that there's loads of stuff there that yeah. there's uh, there's Bronze Age henges, um, there's Iron Age remains, there's uh, Roman, there's lots of Roman stuff, uh, and and really up to date, there was there's quite a lot of, of Second World War um, uh, archaeology to be found. So really, it, it Norfolk is the gift that keeps on giving, and I think as well <laughs> because people tend to live there a long time, there's an amazing wealth of. Um, 
uh, oral history and yeah oral history and wherever I go to do an event which of course I do a lot now um people tell me stories you know and they say mm. you should put this in and I was looking in an old notebook the other day and I just written in the margin shrieking pits you know that's obviously that's obviously somewhere in Norfolk you know I'm gonna I'm gonna not those sort of pits um <laughs> I, I you know that's got to go in a book somewhere isn't it you know there's always yeah. some, there's always something in Norfolk and uh, my grandmother lived there um and my, my aunt so I've got some sort of family links there and it was really sort of family holidays in in Norfolk but shall I, shall I tell you about the moment when I thought I'd write about Norfolk yeah, yeah please yeah it's well um so my husband Andy's an archaeologist, um, mm. although he wasn't when I met him. He, he was a lawyer and working. Yeah, city. working in the city. He, he, yeah, and he retrained as an archaeologist when my kids were quite young. Um, and so we were on holiday with, with my aunt in North North. We were walking across Titchwell Marsh with, with the kids who were maybe about four. They're twins. So it's not that I don't know their individual ages. <laughs> <laughs> about four, uh, yeah. They're about four. They're both the same age, okay? Um, so we were walking across Titchwell Marsh and uh, Andy said that prehistoric people thought marshland was sacred because it's neither land nor sea but it's something in between they thought of it as as a bridge to the afterlife you know neither land nor sea neither life nor death it, it sort of spanned those two um zones really and, and it was an in-between place between them and that's what gave me the idea of setting the crossing places in norfolk and that's I did just see Ruth Galloway walking towards me out of the mist. I know that sounds very cliched, but I did. She just appeared and I just wow. knew I had to write about her. I hope she wasn't wearing a red coat like so many, <laughs> yes, so, so, many, many covers. so many people on book covers. Though I feel that it's a yellow coat now. Just it is a yellow coat now. doesn't it? Because people want to avoid the cliche, the red coat. They've gone yes. for the cliche, the yellow one. I don't think Ruth was wearing a red coat. Um, I think she would probably be wearing something that merged more into the background. But there she was in front of me. Do you know what? I want to paint it. Oh, I've, I've got an art. I've got an art degree, so I do tend to see things in that that way, and I can see the painting. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, please do if you ever did. I'd love <laughs> to see it. But you know, my mum was an artist, and one of my sisters is an artist. And I sometimes think that I became a writer because I can't paint. You know, so <laughs> I I would love to be able to paint it. You paint with words. Thank you. <laughs> I, I want to add uh, an important piece of archaeology into the Norfolk thing. And it, it, it's very, it still hurts me now, visceral. I'm having a visceral reaction remembering this as a four-year-old, losing my red spade at Wells Next to Sea. <laughs> so it got swallowed by some sort of quicksand uh, in the wash. And I, I still to this day feel that pain. I, oh. Honestly, the loss... Of well, this yeah. spade. Well, I lost what? Kermit in Mumbles Beach in Swansea. Similar circumstances. Who did you <laughs> so... use Kermit? Did you say <laughs> Kermit the Frog? Yes, yes. Okay, right. I, I, no, no. I can, I can imagine. Do you know lost things? It's so interesting, isn't it? Well, I guess your spade is in good company because it's there with the crown jewels, isn't it? Absolutely, like, yeah. John, the John lost in the wash. But I remember once uh, sitting down with, with my sister and brother-in-law and writing a list of all the kind of totemic things we'd lost as children. <laughs> yeah. And, it, you know, somebody, it needs to be the start of a book or a poem or a song cycle or something, because you do remember. So I used to collect, I guess I'm older than you two, but did you remember those little China animals? They were called whimsies. Whimsies, yes. Yes, I do. yes. 
So I used to collect those so little tiny China animals. I mean, I've got a little China cat here, which I'm afraid people won't be able to see, but I'm showing you a little blue China yeah. cat. Yes, fondly remember Wednesday. Leslie Thompson gave me, uh, I keep on my desk. But anyhow, I used to collect those. And I had my favourite one in my pocket and I dropped it from Brighton Pier. Oh, my God. I, I think feel your pain. He was, a, he was a hedgehog, weirdly called Alan. I don't know why he was called <laughs> He's there with your... He's there with your spade and Kermit somewhere in some yeah. liminal zone between life and death, something. That's, yeah, that's right. That's I don't right. remember buy, buying whimsies as a child, loving them. And you see them in charity shops now, don't you? You do, and I've had to restrain myself from buying <laughs> a replacement Alan, but I think that might be a bit sad, I don't know. I, you said if you've seen Alan, you should have Alan too. I, I think it's... it's with, um, we're going to stray away from Ruth... You know, temporarily, I think, because we found an avenue which is just different. But isn't it strange? I mean, you've written ch uh, children's fiction and obviously worked in it, but just the passion and the connection that one can have with an object of desire, whether we have it or not, when we're younger, when we're and when when a craze sweeps through a school, and I can think of all the crazes that went through my primary school. So, uh, Rubik's cubes was one oh, end, yeah. but then Smurfs and Star a Star Wars collection cards with the bubblegum packs and all that stuff. You know, the passion and and desire explains. I suppose it. You know, it's almost tapping into when we've got uh, antagonists in our books who have such a goal and they will do anything to get it. The only it's the time, same with Smurfs, as you The only saying. time, apart from, <laughs> from when I chased this lady here, the only time you ever feel that, apart from in love, is is really that, I mean, you know, if you're if you're a normal, balanced person, is when you're a kid and you want no, something. I think adults do it too. Do Sorry, you? I hate to disagree on you that, but I, this is what my master's was all about. Okay. Our connection with things. I, I, how valuable either. Do you know what? Uh, let's. Uh, we could go off on a big tangent because that's what my <laughs> masters was about. Because I did, uh, I did a masters on interiors in Victorian novels. Oh right. Because I, um, I, I did a I did an MA in Victorian fiction, and Victorian world was very cluttered. There was lots mm. of stuff, and my theory is that that's why detective fiction appeared in that era because it was like to find a, a way through through this sort of interior clutter and the, all the stuff that people had in their homes and and to find sort of domestic clues so we're kind of coming back on track here um but yes, thank you for that <laughs> but, but uh, i mean if you think about the moonstone which is one of my favorite novels and you know sometimes called the first detective novel by wilkie collins obviously i always think it's very interesting that that the central crime is not a murder at all it's a theft. It's a theft mm. of a stone, of, of a jewel. Yet Wilkie Collins is so brilliant that he makes us care about that like it's a death. I mean, there are deaths in the book later on, but the central crime is a is a theft. And when you think about um, the sort of sleight of hand in which, uh, you know, he he, um, he was obsessed with the real life Road Hill House murder, where the inspector, Inspector Witcher of, of the, the fame later on mm. in, the, in the book, Inspector um, Suspicions of Mr. Witcher, he examined the people in the house's night clothes for blood. And in the Moonstone, um, Inspector Cuff um, examines them for paint. 
And so Wilkie Collins makes blood into paint. It's very, very clever. And I think it's a very clever book about a totemic object, which I guess is what we've been discussing. It's yes. sort of the That's... power of the totemic object. What it's, was it's... your thesis about, Rebecca? Just so so I did um, a degree. I, well, I first of all did a degree in economics and politics when we met a long time ago. Then I did a degree in fine arts um, a few years ago and then a master's in art by research. And I was focusing on our relationship with objects you know basically what you're saying that sort of that pull of objects and how passionate we can feel about things as much as we feel about people and but we would never admit that you would you know somebody wouldn't you wouldn't say oh I feel just the same about my china cat as I do my children <laughs> the truth is you but do yes of course because that and that's why the repair shop is so is so um yeah. popular isn't it it shows that the people put some like animist you know feelings in into these uh uh inanimate objects I think you're absolutely right yeah there's that element with the repair shop of paying tribute to people you've lost through the objects that they owned and bringing them back oh. to the to the original patina and and, and condition yes it is it is extraordinary okay well we've really gone down a rabbit hole but <laughs> yes, yes, let's but... Go, but it's interesting you bring up the you know your your uh, work around um victorian fiction and uh, crime fiction i mean just those origins i mean they're almost origin stories for the genre Yes. So that that I mean, do you use those insights still? Do they still provide inspiration to your work? Yeah, definitely. I think I'm very well. Wilkie Collins is a big inspiration for me, um, and I think um, Stranger Diaries, which is my first uh, standalone, is very much you know it's, it's a modern day Victorian Gothic novel, and there's there's a Victorian short story running through it that I wrote, and it's one of my favourite things to see. Is it's the most searched thing is is whether this was a real story, and obviously uh, I, I wrote it. So um, you know I, I love that. I love that whole genre. I love, but also I think the way that Wilkie Collins particularly and Dickens of course as well writes about place. You know, we, we, mm. we started with place and you think of the shivering stands in, in the Moonstone. It's it's a place that is in itself uh, significant and uh, everything happens sort of because of that place. But also, I always think it's very interesting, Wilkie Collins, that, that these these sort of sinister um, mansions and places where things happen, like in Woman in White, are actually quite near big towns. You know, he doesn't doesn't make you go to the to, to Wuthering Heights. You know, I think I think um, Percival Glyde's house, you know, it's quite near the station, things like, so things happen that I, he first sees a woman in white on Hampstead Heath, you know, we're not miles out, you know, you find these sort of gothic corners in 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 a crowded town, really. Yeah, it, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because the cities that, that they're writing about, the way that they've expanded over, you know, they've, they've had periods of expansion, because uh, I'm thinking about and I haven't started but I would like to write a book set in in 1860s Manchester which when it was the fulcrum of the industrial revolution yes uh the cooperative society being set up there and uh Marx and Engels working in Cheatham's library and all that sort of thing and the massive deprivation that in places like Ancoats and all these sort of areas of, of Manchester but also the first intercity railway service had started opened by the Duke of Wellington between Manchester and Liverpool, all these innovations were coming through. But what's so interesting is that the areas that are now just, you know, huge areas of, of without any greenery at all, just these huge urban sprawl, were villages or were, you know, grazing fields and things like this. And I think it's it's really interesting, you know, it's very hard for us in the 21st century to 
<laughs> figure out that actually there was a country journey between, I don't know, if you were going from central London to get to Chiswick at that yes, period. Yes, you, yeah, You'd absolutely. have been in open fields at some point. Yeah, Camberwell was, was the countryside, wasn't it? You've got to write it, Adrian, write it. That's, <laughs> what, you, that's what you tell your authors, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is. It is. I'm very good at dishing that out, but um, <laughs> not so good at following it myself. That's that's for sure. That's true. <laughs> but um, that's it's great that you know you've got that connection because I think quite a lot of people. It's funny how many authors we've met who've decided they they would write crime without reading any. Oh, and I find that I find that very strange. So, you, you, how much does you know reading impact on your writing? Do you think? Do you do you, do you keep uh, looking around for for you know, your compatriots and your, your contemporaries? Yeah, I mean, I think most writers are readers, aren't they? And, you know, mm. I, I often go to schools, as, as I know you guys do as well. And I always say, you know, if you want to be a writer, the wonderful thing is there's no one route to be a writer, is it? So mm -hmm. I think that's a great thing for kids to hear. And anyone can be it. But, you know, obviously the, you have to be a reader first, I think. Um, and I wrote my first... <laughs> crime novel when I was 11 um, <laughs> and it was called The Hair of the Dog um, which which must have been something my parents talked about yeah I was gonna say at home. yeah I'm not sure I quite knew the meaning of it you know the meaning is that if you drank too much the night before then you'd have a bloody Mary for breakfast or something um, but but it was the idea of you know the thing that injured you would be the thing that makes you better and uh, but it was very very Christy ish and it was set in Rottingdean Adrian you'll know Rottingdean oh yes just a very pretty picturesque village next to Saltdean. Yes. Uh, uh, Saltdean is kind of twenties Art Decoy but but uh, Rottingdean is really old you know it's in the Doomsday Book and it's one of those little villages that's so mm. pretty it's quite sinister. So uh, my my first book was set there so definitely you know I can trace that back from you know that was the first thing I tried to write and you know it's not very good and I've got the beginning of it I can't remember what happened at the end uh, but it was you know I was inspired by the Christie and and I, I read loads I, I read all sorts of things so um I know I was saying how much I love Victorian literature, which I do, but I read loads of modern crime. Of course, now I, I guess it's the same with you two. I get sent, I'm so lucky, I get sent a lot of things to read. Um, uh, but I do think it is a bit of a golden age, maybe even a platinum age. Um, <laughs> we've had a golden age, haven't we? This is a platinum age in, in crime fiction because there's so many brilliant, I've just read Gillian McAllister's Wrong Place, Wrong Time, which is a wonderful sort of time slip crime novel, absolutely fantastic. Huge fan of, of, of William Shaw. Um, um, yes. Uh, Leslie Thompson, uh, uh, Sarah Hillary, Jane Casey, lots of great writers. Will Dean, who, who writes these terrific books. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he's British, but he lives in the middle of a Swedish elk forest. And he writes this incredible Rebecca, book Rebecca still uh, waxes lyrical about meeting Will Dean so, at Harrogate. Yeah, so at Harrogate, we sort of grabbed him and said, come on, our podcast. And his, his green outdoor jacket and his, his he looks like luxurious he lives in ears. Well, you know, he, he is a very picturesque person. I have he to is say. very picturesque. And also yeah. extremely nice. Um, yes, he is. And if you are to follow him on social media, he has this most amazing uh, uh, dog as well, a St. Bernard <laughs> dog. So, you know, <laughs> who is even nicer to look at than Will, I have to say. So, yeah. So, um, he the man and the dog. <laughs> he'd probably agree. Yeah. So the, I think there is lots, lots of terrific writers writing at the moment and I see sort of um you know uh people people coming up all the time who new writers who are great so I think it's a pretty exciting time it, it is and and as part of that scene I mean you, you've been you've been the the festival director for the Harrogate one year I think 2017 I think it was yeah, I think it was yeah yeah uh which is a huge commitment and all the, th the events that you attend I know, I know you love 
meeting readers and, and, and getting out there. But um, how how difficult is it to balance, you know, the number of books that are coming in for a tagline or a review to you, uh, the book tours that each book brings you as well, uh, you know, uh, pandemic aside, and then the festivals? How difficult is it to just to find the time to keep the writing moving forward? Well, it is something you have to think about because, you know, as you know, there are so many um, writing festivals these days, you know, and you could go to one a week. You really could. And we, yeah. we all met at Fatal Shaw, which was um, a, a crime writing day that William Shaw and I, William Shaw, William Fatal Shaw, and I uh, organised <laughs> as part of, of, of the sort of Shoreham Literary Festival. So, and that was great to do that on our doorsteps, but there are loads of these things. And I, as you said, you know, I love going to them because I love meeting readers. And of course I love meeting my crime writing panels because it, it's true what everyone says, we are a pretty close community. It's quite collegiate really. Um, so I love that, but I have to remember, I've got to write two books a year. Well, I have been writing two books a year and you do have to find time for that. And I'm not uh, one who can write while on the road. William, again, you know, if you're on a train with him, he's literally, typing away and I'm like some awful child saying to him William what are you doing writing my book you know he will do that he will do that even on a short train journey he'll write a couple of paragraphs but I only like to write at home I'm here in my writing shed talking to you got a quite an old desktop that's where I like to write so I have to make sure I have enough days in the year to, to write two books a year which is what I've been doing over the last few years so I'm quite a quick writer though um I try and do a thousand words a day, which I know a lot of people do. I only, I don't do multiple drafts. It's really, when I say I only do one draft, I don't want people to think, oh my goodness, she just writes it and it's appears. But, no. you know, I, I will edit as I go along, but but sure. basically I won't go back to the beginning. So yeah. when it's finished, I'll send it to, to my editor, my agent. So uh, I, I'm fairly quick and I'm very disciplined when I'm writing. But even so, I do have to make sure there are enough days in a year. And, you know, I love traveling abroad. I, I, I did a tour in, in Sweden this year and, and wow. um, uh, as a Danish crime writing festival. Uh, so, some reason the books are very very popular in Sweden and Denmark so I love doing that who wouldn't love that but you've got to remember you've got to write the books as well <laughs> yeah that's true that's true and in your writing shed I mean what I, I love the fact that I mean Roald Dahl seemed to make them fashionable I think <laughs> <laughs> and I'm glad that his has been saved for the nation yeah. uh but it looks it, it you know it looks a bit posher than his perhaps well yeah in fact Andy who who sort of erected the shed mm. uh, says I shouldn't call it a shed but anything else sounds a bit Margot Ledbettery oh my writing, <laughs> <laughs> my writing studio my writing nook here we are and it's, it's it's quite a posh shed that that was sort of made from a flat pack um so yeah there's there's room for for a chair there's an um and a, and a desk and a computer there's another chair for my cat um cat you have a cat well, yes, I, I really sadly, Rebecca, lost my cat, Gus, age 18, in um, April. And I really no. didn't think, I thought I might not be able to write without him because he was always with me. But we've just got a new kitten, I have to say. Oh. oh, that must be quite challenging to write with. Though. Well, he's too little to, to go out the house yet. He just had his second injection today. Um, second sort of, uh, so he can't go out the house. So he hasn't actually been to the shed yet. Ah. Um, but he's certainly showing shines. So, showing signs of wanting to come into the shed so I think that will be exciting when he does but so because we we have a cat don't we uh the Hobet cat who inspired our logo and she's oh, recently yeah. taken to sitting on my knee while I'm on the laptop 
So I'm sort of one arm over the cat, one arm under a tail, trying to type. <laughs> they do do that. So when The Last Remains comes out in February, I've included Gus's last editorial comment because he used to always put oh. his big fat foot on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've included the last thing that, that he said about that book. Bit enigmatic, <laughs> you know, he wasn't that helpful with his commentary. But yeah, they do love to be where you are, don't they? And I, I think that cats are wonderful companions. I love all animals and I often write about them. I think it's one of the things my editor, Jane, has to sometimes stop me doing is writing too much about the animals. I will write <laughs> something like, so Ruth's got a cat called Flint and I'll write something like, Flint was feeling bored and Jane will write the margin. No, he isn't. He's a cat. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting, is it, with, the, with the, the, the animals? I think that one of the things that serial writers, in terms of, I mean, you've written 15 Ruth Galloway books and uh, a, a number of, you know, Brighton uh, books as well. The, the, the fact is that uh, readers really hook in to the pets. They really do. It's one of the things that keeps them coming back, I think. If you write well about the, the animals. So long as you don't do anything bad to them, though. Yeah, yeah you wow. can't do that. Yeah, I mean, a cat did die in the first Ruth book, The Crossing Place. Oh. I'm not going to say I killed a cat because I didn't. It died as part of the story. But And, you know, it's, it's absolutely true. I've had many more letters and emails about that than I've had about any of the humans I've killed. <laughs> and I don't want to boast, but I've killed quite a lot of humans. Uh, no one really cares about them. Uh, but I think, that, I think there are all sorts of things in play here, aren't there? I mean, I think people love animals and love hearing about them. But people would slightly suspect, I think, that authors kill animals animals off without thinking about it too deeply. Mm. I think that's why people are so upset if an animal does die, especially in, in a way that seems a bit gratuitous. Um, but, you know, animals animals are, are great to write about. And you've got that element, sometimes that animals can see or sense things that, that humans yep. can't. So there's always a bit of ratcheting up the tension. Uh, if you, you have to give your readers quite a few people to care about, and animals are definitely those. Uh, you know, they sort of add to that cast list, really, yes. of, of people that you care, people, you know, people you care about. <laughs> characters I should say that you care about so I think um you know in any series particularly long-running series yeah, animals are great and you know as I so sadly found out with, with my cat who, who lived to 18 and was was died in his sleep was was had a very happy life they have a fairly short lifespan which if you have an animal in a book it, it often brings tragedy I'm afraid so there were all those elements absolutely yeah, well, I mean, ours is what? Yeah, where 14? is she? Yeah, where is she, A? Eh? She normally comes on the podcast. because <laughs> I was going to ask about your cat logo. Is she is she orange like the like the logo? But but she's a calico cat, so she's got orange, oh, black, lovely. and white patches. But um, we just went for orange, well, partly because of her, but just mm. it's a good colour. Yeah, I, I, well, I looked and at all the... Hair. I'll be honest with you. I did a little bit of research, and I thought, how many logos in publishing have a kind of tinge of orange like penguin or whatever so that's what that's where i went with it so uh you know in terms of but in my mind anyway yeah and the, with the pages <laughs> well, my, my brother-in-law um who, who is in some ways inspired the character of nelson is a big blackpool fan so he would definitely be oh yeah the tangerine absolutely yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um let's let's touch on on, on your historical series set in brighton and uh, max mephisto and uh that's a great character how much no really good i mean you know to have somebody of that that with that sort of skill set in crime is just fantastic brighton always to me when i was walking around it always had that that feeling of the 50s hanging over it a little bit of the graham green brighton rock does. feel to it 
It does. It really does. So is it, and, and given you're in Salt Dean, where, you know, it really has that that sort of feel of, yeah. of an era, yeah. um, how difficult was it to recapture and reconjure up that, that period? Well, as you say, it is kind of present in Brighton. There is that sort of sense in Brighton that you also get a bit in a place like New York, don't you, where mm, you feel like you could definitely. be in a historical uh, series, just walking down the road, just sort of crossing a mm. by the pavilion or going going along the pier. You know, you could be in some other era, which I think is quite strong in Brighton. Mm, um, but, very much but so. Ma- Max was was inspired by my granddad, who was a musical comedian. He was in variety, um, and he um, when he died, he left me his playbills, and they had these oh, amazing wow. names on them. Uh, things like I don't know Lou Lenny and her unrideable mule. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's all that about? Is that a real mule? Who knows? <laughs> you know, was it two people disguised as a mule? I don't know, but but I would love to know if anyone <laughs> listening does know. Um, and you know, uh, oh, um, Dorothy and brother. Big letters. I mean, if we're going to put it in big letters, why not give us his name? What's yeah. His, yeah. Um, uh, uh, Radini, the gay deceiver. I mean, you know. Oh, wow. There's a story there, isn't there? Um, so those names sort of were the inspiration for the Brighton Mysteries, which which uh, are set in, start off in 1950, sort of the, the last days of variety. Um, yeah. And they sort of follow follow the journey of variety when, you know, 1953, when people got uh, telev- televisions to watch the coronation. Um it's it started to, to decline, you know. So it's quite interesting and a bit melancholic to write about sort of the last days of, of, of that era, really. And Max is is a magician. My granddad was a comedian, not a magician, but he was yes. fascinated by magicians and mm-hmm. often tried to work out how they did the act. And he was often on the bill with, with a very famous magician called Jasper Maskelin. Um, oh yeah, was really, really famous between the wars, and and has himself a fascinating history. And part of that history is in the Second World War. Yes. he was asked to put together this this group of, of magicians in the war effort, and they were Absolutely. called the magic the magic gang. And they did this. And there are several books about them. They 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 use sort of stage magic, camouflage, sleight of hand, misdirection. Um, in in and the they war, they created effort. A, 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 a a shadow army that yeah, was a shadow army. Around- the fields of Kent, so that yes. it looked like they were about to invade Calais, but actually there were cardboard cutouts and all that yes. sort of stuff. And, the and shadow fields, the shadow fields are sometimes called and created dummy tanks and dummy soldiers. Yes. So that is the backstory that Max has as well in my my story. Ah, brilliant! So yeah. Max Mephisto was was part of a group um, who I've called the Magic Men, and that that explains his link with, with the detective um, Edgar Stevens because yes. they were both part of that same group. So the book started in 1950, so I'm writing one at the moment, which is called. The Great Deceiver, which is another name from one of the playbills. Yeah. And I, but I'm, up, I'm up to 1966. And somebody told me that there was a football match that year. So I've got to try and mm. get that in. Yeah. Football match? I, I've heard, <laughs> you know, I don't, don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> well, um, I mean, it's interesting, again, going back to Brighton, because uh, one of the stories I did for TV for BBC South was to go to the Hippodrome, which is now uh, was a Mecca bingo hall. Yes, I think. yes. Uh, but it was a great variety hall. And so much of it has that, you know, it is of that period and still retains some of the features and the the playbills and the the photos of the music hall stars are all around the place. Uh, And, and, um, and I, it just brings back memories of that particular place, you know, the smell of fried food, 
uh, <laughs> and, and I remember meeting a lady there called Doris who was in her 80s, I think, and her Ethel. Uh, you couldn't make them up. Doris and Ethel. Honestly, they were they were in one of the little alcoves because they have one, you know, one of the boxes that they have uh, yes. from the old music hall, the and they just won fifty. Yes. Yeah, they just won the national um, prize of fifty grand. While fifty being... grand? You can say fifty quid. No, fifty, 50 grand. Quid. And they were they were oh. being treated like royalty. That was part of the story. The other one was to talk to Maverick, who was the bingo caller. Had been there forty years or something, and it was the most boring man I'd ever met. But like... but I, I so I spun him up to be this sort of uh, <laughs> yeah, he shoots yeah. from the lip and all this sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah. You know, they call him Maverick, and he's yes. you know. Um, <laughs> and he wasn't allowed on to do own, like, number one. Yeah, they weren't allowed to do legs eleven or any of that stuff anymore. Oh. No, no, you have it's to just ladies. you just had to call it straight. And and you know, as a result, he was. It's extraordinary. He wasn't more interesting. So one of one of the bright mysteries is set in in, in the in the Hippodrome, uh, vanishing mm. box. Um, and I have been inside, and actually, Mecca Bingo did did re retain quite a lot of the stuff, like you said, with the, with the. Yeah these signs and they were called i never know how to pronounce this word special fauteuil special armchairs these special seats and you have all the um and there's 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 scaffolding up again outside it isn't there i don't know do you know what's going on at the no, moment no i don't i i you know i i think that the the pressure on bingo i mean gala built a big place out near the the, the magistrates court um which bizarrely was managed by mr rumbold from <laughs> the actor who played mr rumbold in uh, are, are you being, being served, served? Uh, he was the, he was the manager of the of the the newly built gala bingo um, when it when it was all modernised. And, <laughs> wow, and I, these connections because the Hippodrome was built as a circus, wasn't it? That's right, that's correct. Yeah, it was. And yeah, it's, and it's a Frank Matcham theatre. It's you know which which are you know very beautiful inside. So it's absolutely worth preserving. Really, it's a mm, totally. It's a and I think it was it. It was going to be a roller skating rink once. It has, it has like a lot of places in Brighton, quite a, quite a history. I think, in the, and and even when it was a, a venue for, for the, the Beatles appeared there, didn't they? Yes, they did. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's really got quite a history. It needs to be oh, preserved. Well, we 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 go down these history things, but I mean, they are so inspirational, but, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, place and history, and the way you can feel history in places as well. I think that's a big um, part of writing, isn't it? It is. It's the layers, isn't it? So I've just written a book, with Bleeding Heart Yard, which is kind of yes. a standalone, but also in the Harbinder Course series. Um, it's the first book I've written set in Bright in London, uh, which which was where I was born and lived till I was five, and where I was at university, I was at King's College London and lived there for sort of another ten years. Um, but it's in London as well. It's those amazing layers, isn't it? Because you've got there's a layer called the Boudican destruction layer. Yes, yeah, and the, it's the, from the, where burnt London down and to think there's this layer there you know there's, there's obviously a roman layer and then there there are there's a tudor layer and a victorian layer and so it's that isn't it it's looking down through the layers i find that endlessly fascinating yeah and, and clearly andy does too because that's 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 his job he does but he's a little bit snobbish about it to be honest with you adrian he only likes prehistory so he really oh. only likes uh, uh neolithic mesolithic um uh, Paleolithic, in fact, Neolithic's a bit modern for him. So you know, he he really likes the old stuff. So uh, 
any um any any more sort of uh, anything past the romans he's a little bit um, snobbish about but we had an amazing trip when i was researching the lo the last remains because it's partly set in these um, mesolithic flint, flint mines in norfolk which you might have come across adrian of thetford they're these yes. incredible complex of mines um and we grimes got graves, to go grimes graves yes yeah so we got to go on a special trip to Grimes Graves and down one of the shafts, which was just incredible. So he did enjoy that. That was right, <laughs> right in his period. But anything more. So so in fact, I I, I you know, he, he's been a big inspiration for me, but actually have a, a separate archaeology advisor uh, for the books, a woman called Lindsay Harvey, who's a bones expert, uh, a bit more like Ruth. So uh, yeah, but yeah. I'm very happy to to do that bit of research <laughs> absolutely i was going to sort of talk about research because that's something you talk about on your website and how much you enjoy it um but how much time do you set aside for that element is it is it a constant learning experience or do you think right i'm going to go with this theme and then i'm going to do the research <laughs> I think now it has become um, something that goes alongside the writing. So I will have an idea for a book and I will start it. And I've learned to start even if I don't know the stuff um, and, and sort of research it as I go along because you don't always know what you're going to need to know, do you? So mm. that's kind of how it is at the moment. It's sort of an ongoing thing. And, and you know, I'm very lucky now because I know Lindsay, another archaeologist, Graham Bartlett, who, who I, I know you guys know, yeah. uh, advises me on who's, who's the ex-chief superintendent of Brighton and Hove, um, and is now a really good and successful crime writer himself, but he's he's very generous with his advice on, on police procedures and things like that. So now at least I know I have people, I've got a, a friend who is, um, well, she, she, she is a university lecturer, now she's dean, um, a woman called Mary Williams, who, who works at uh, um, uh, Portsmouth University so she advises on all the academic stuff so now I know I have people that I can call on so you do sort of have a bit of a research team don't you as you go along but it, I do still have it but but you know you can just research is, is so much fun um and you can just spend all your time doing it <laughs> you going can. down rabbit holes <laughs> yes exactly and I do say because I, I teach creative writing um at a, a, a at a at Westine, which is near Chichester, and also at, on a MST at Cambridge. And I do always say to the students, you know, you have to start writing, you know, just start writing. Doesn't matter if you don't know about police procedure in 1920s Rome. You can find that out. <laughs> you can't yeah. wait for that. You've got to start writing. No, Keep that's writing. that's brilliant advice and, and a, a, a great takeaway. Um, in terms of uh, your own craft then, uh, given that you're teaching it as well, and is there anything in, anything that that you still that nags you at all with your your own writing? Oh, I wish I was, you know, when you read somebody, you go, oh, I wish I had some element that I was better at. Is there anything left? And given that you've written so many books now, oh, definitely, because we can always get better. I really um, am sometimes envious when people have a real killer plot idea. You know, yeah. I would say my sort of strength as a writer, probably characterization um, and, and maybe setting an atmosphere and those sort of things, which, you know, um, maybe I'm bigging myself up a bit, but I do think I'm quite good at those and those are elements I like. But th those killer plot ideas, you know, and, and I take my hat off again to, to Agatha Christie, because again and again, she, she, you know, I think, well, I've thought of something quite good here. And I think, oh, didn't Agatha Christie do that? Yeah. <laughs> she did. You know, the, the and, and it's, I, I mentioned Ginny McAllister's Wrong Place, Wrong Time. That's a real example of a book that has an absolute killer idea in it. Um, and and fantastic characterization as well um but but it's it's yeah so sometimes do wish 
do wish I could have a, a killer idea. Yeah, that's not easy. I mean, that's that's something we don't actually ask a lot of our guests. And I, I it struck me today, actually, I was in the shower and thinking, we don't ask a lot about twists and plot ideas and things like that. Um, but do you have a... Do you have a sort of radar when you're writing as to well, I need to sew a herring here in or well, yeah, that's such a, a phrase. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. throw, a herring in, throw a herring into the sea. I know what you mean, Ed. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so. And I think there is something that comes, and I've definitely got better at plotting, I have to say, as I've gone along. You read the crossing places, I think there are some nice descriptions of the marsh, and I hope people, you know, get to know Ruth and Nelson in that book. But the plotting is not as good as it is, you know, say in Bleeding Heart Yard, which I've just written. So I do think I've got better about that. And it's, it's back to Max Mephisto and the magic, isn't it? The misdirection, look over here, I'm just doing this, or, you know... Yeah. Um, so so I have kind of studied that craft, I think, and got better at it. And, and now I think do have a bit of a sense of when to reveal. And, and you know, you want at the end, your reader has to either guess with you in the last few pages or not guess. But then they mm. have to read back and it has to be, I heard a good phrase recently, retrospectively cursive. So it has to all make sense if you go back. Um, mm. So uh, I think I think that's the aim, you know, uh, to go back and realize what have left all the uh, put them in the prologue. That's what I sometimes tell myself. Because <laughs> <laughs> then you know, people often forget the prologue, but you they say, do, and I love I'm prologues. Sorry, I told you in the prologue. It's not my mm. fault you've forgotten it. Yeah, so, that's, that's interesting you say that. Uh, personally, I mean, you know, as putting my narration hat on. Um, <laughs> if I can, I know uh, this is a phrase I use a lot in the book. Putting my narration hat on, prologues do my head in. Do they? It, That's interesting. Yes, because well, um, if nothing else, this is a really, really, you know, uh, tiny little technical thing. Is that a prologue will put out the chapter list out of uh. sync. So you know, because when you're up uploading it, it's got to go. You know, zero zero one is suddenly the prologue. So therefore, chapter one is now zero zero two, and often it catches me out. It's simple as that. It's just a small technical thing, and it does my head in. Uh, but isn't it, it interesting though that if you call the the prologue chapter one, it would feel so different. Yes, mm -hmm. indeed. Uh, and um, you know that would that would solve the technical problem, wouldn't it? Just to call it chapter one. You know, um, some of my books have prologues and some don't. I I don't really have strong feelings about it. Sometimes students say, "Oh, I know not to do a prologue because because editors and agents hate them." And and I don't think it's, it's it quite like that because I don't know. Um, but because sometimes they really work. And and there's a red. I'm a big Reginald Hill fan. And there's one book mm. where it tells you the killer in the first line, and it is wow. there. I won't say which one it is. That's bold. So clever. I've never yeah. done anything that clever. That's awesome. Mm. We're getting to that point now, I think, where we put you under the ultimate stress Headlight. chat. You know, the, the <laughs> and that we ought to mention before we get to that that question. So I'm just going to foreshadow it. But we ought to talk about your podcast. So yes, you do this too. Not quite. Not <laughs> not not in the in the in the professional way that you two do. Yeah, I I've I've recorded um there'll be just six episodes of of this and it's called the plot thickens with Ellie Griffiths and really it's to celebrate uh book fifteen of the Ruth series because I've said that it's going to be the last Ruth book for now. I'm not making any you know to totally um written in stone judgments here but but I've said it'll it'll be the last for now so to celebrate that um, publishers had the idea of me doing this podcast so uh, first 
episode I talked to my agent to my editor Jane because as I said she's edited all the books Jane Wood and that's such a it's it's meant we're very close friends now and um but it's it's such a wonderful relationship I talked to her second one I talked to Anne Cleves which is just so interesting about place and character and all those things I speak to my archaeologist um uh, advisor Lindsay Harvey about bones and putrefaction and all those fun stuff I chat to Mick Heron who is so much fun about uh, writing a series and what happens if that series gets on television those sort of things chat with my two best writing friends William Shaw and Leslie Thompson just about generally writing and the support we give each other and we talk about each other's books and it's quite a fun one and uh, we interrupt each other and laugh a lot in that one and um, I haven't recorded this one yet I'm really looking forward to it uh, Val McDermott who's been a oh. big inspiration to me so the last one will be with Val well, oh, that's, that's lovely. We're, we're, we're earmarking Val yeah, yeah, for yeah. episode 200. Yeah, but yes. on our wish list. <laughs> uh, well, definitely. I'll put in a good word for you. She's a lot. Thank you. Oh, Thank you so much. Well, um, let's let, let's get to the, the, the moment that everyone, I think, <laughs> hangs around for um, on our podcast. Difficult difficulties they go for. But I, I need to summon the voice. Okay, don't move. Like a spirit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is fun. Rebecca's random question. Often my random questions, which are totally random, relate to what we've talked about. And I don't know how that's it's quite spooky. So this one does relate to the things we talked about. Um, I a couple of years ago, I was thinking about the fact that when you grow up, there are childish things that you still like to do. For example, splashing in puddles. I have great, you know, great joy from splashing in puddles or playing in the bath with plastic bottles. <laughs> I don't want to ask. Me? No, I, I, you sort of squeeze them and, yeah, make geezers and things like that. Walking on fresh snow. You know, I love doing that. So I want to know, is there one thing you used to love doing as a child that you still get great joy out of as an adult? Wow, that's a great question. Also, Adrian, really great voice. Really oh, thank you. Question. <laughs> you wait till I put some echo on it and it really gets dramatic. Oh, yeah, that's really exciting. Um, I, I think probably my love of swimming is probably still linked to that kind of childhood, um, just fun. And um, one of the things uh, as as well that I love doing, I love doing as a child, I still love doing, is, is sort of looking in rock pools. Mm. I really love rock pools. My, my daughter Juliet's a zoologist and my son's a, a musician, uh, Alex. Um, Juliet is a real expert on rock pools. And she she, she says they're a very old... Um, uh, sort of sort of uh um what's the word habitat the very very yeah the habitats yeah. and you know you can look and you can just you find a little anemone and there's a little crab moving across them and you can imagine that actually this is a whole microcosm world and and the big rocks of the high um the rich people live on the big high uh chalk rocks and the poorer people live right down the bottom scurrying along there so i think possibly playing in rock pools is the thing that I still keep from my childhood. And the other thing is telling myself stories. I do still tell myself stories. When I was a child, apparently, I used to walk round and round the kitchen table um, telling myself stories. And luckily my parents were not phased by this. I'm the youngest, so they probably used to everything. Um, but I, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still quite a pacer. I like to pace to and fro, and I do still like to tell myself stories. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. How about you? Uh, you got anything? Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose that the one thing that, because I was never particularly brilliant at anything apart from singing, I think, uh, when I was a kid, but the main thing that I, I did was voices. So 
you know, I still do that. I mean, especially if not so much when I was younger, and I could do a few when I was younger, but when my voice broke and all that sort of thing, I could do the adult world. And I spent most of my teenage years boring everybody with my impressions. <laughs> so I still... You still do that. I yeah. get Let's hear an impression. Yeah, it, it, you I stick... The worst one is Boris Johnson at three o'clock in the well, morning. That's not what you want. No, especially with <laughs> intimately in, entwined hey, who's, a, who's, a, <laughs> who's the other Tory that you, you've been doing uh, I've been trying to get Jacob Rees-Mogg okay, down yeah. um, and it's it's so hard to be that evil um, I am crossing like, myself right now <laughs> yeah, well you know uh, it's the way that he will always dwell on a word and Ooh, you know that kind of that's sort very of, good you might very well think that, but if you look closely at our policy, you know, and, and that kind of you sound like a Doctor Who villain. To well, me. <laughs> uh, you know, okay, so all Doctor and, Who and, villains, all you needed to do and was so go, does he? <laughs> yeah, all you needed to do was was break up the word "ock" or something <laughs> like that. You only had to break it into two syllables, and and extra, you know, you know, that's how they did it. You know, the, but yeah, I, I, I suppose I, most of the time I do go to bed. As Michael Caine. The thing that, that Michael does, and you watch it when he does an interview, is that actually he does actually hesitate quite a lot. When he's not obviously on screen, he doesn't tend to do that. But he that there is a little bit of the 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 hes and he does a he doesn't say the, he says the when he's speaking normally. Uh, the elephant and castle comes out, so it's all a, it, yeah. Obviously, that's the nasal thing, and then and then it's and very then just... very good. No, you are good. I go... I impersonated Boris Johnson at Bloody Scotland. You had to do that for me. Um, but what I did was just push. I've got lots of hair, and I pushed my hair <laughs> in my face, and I just shouted "boff" and Cicero and all, and um, you know, see if you work. But Rebecca, what's your childish thing that you still do? Um... You kick leaves. Well, I love kicking leaves. Oh, Walking in fresh snow. I do. I still do it now. And my boys, who are now 19, 16 and 13, they look at me and they go, oh, God, mother. If it snows, <laughs> Rebecca goes out onto the lawn yes. in, in, in whatever she's wearing, and that often isn't... Dressing gown. The dressing gown yeah. or something like that, and she will do snow angels. Of course you will. What, what else would you do? You have to do that. Yes. And um, most adults hate snow, and I think, poor oh, snow. Oh, no, I love snow. Absolutely, I'm totally <laughs> with you on that. I love he snow. He hates snow. I can't bear it. Oh, no, really? Well, I think it's quite sad because the way the world is going, we might not see much snow. No, yeah, that's true. I have, you know, there were some, some wonderful snowy winters when I was growing up in, in, in Salt Dean. And... Yeah. Yeah, well, no, well, that's true. We don't get the 70s winters uh, or 60s winters or whatever. But the, 70s, yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, the seventies winters. Well, the, the 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 thing about snow for me is it's down to my old job as a, as a reporter. And um, while everyone else was being encouraged to stay indoors and all that stuff, we'd be out on the road across the southern counties, trying to find the worst snowdrifts that we could find, and then so getting, walk in and and presumably. then re and report from them. And so what we did was because Southern Counties Radio at the time, now BBC Sussex again. He used to have nine reporters at its at its peak, all with little radio cars, and so they would disappear off to the ver their various patches and find there were snowdrifts, and we'd try and outdo each other trying to describe <laughs> what is essentially frozen water that is white and slippery, and we would, you know, and honestly, we'd have to be so poetic. If you were the ninth person they got to on the on the bounce round, as they used to call it, uh, you know, in drive time, 
And uh, finally, Adrian Hobart joins us from the hog's back. And I'd be, you know, then I would go really poetic and go, you know, as much Wordsworth stuff in as possible about snow. Well, you need to be an Eskimo because they have lots of words for snow, don't they? Yes, they do. But do you know what would have made that better? And I think Rebecca would agree with me if you had just jumped in it. Yes. Yeah. That would have been lovely. I yeah. Well, I never was properly equipped for it because the BBC <laughs> used to, <laughs> this is the thing that, um, when I used to talk to uh, more established reporters who remembered the times in the 80s before John Burt, the dark times, came in, um, he swept away all the allowances that reporters used to get. And they used to get uh, a certain amount of money every year for the right types of shoes and out <laughs> outdoor clothes for the, for the job. And I, when I came in, that had all been swept away. And so, well, you know, I would keep it in my pajamas. So I don't know what no, you need. Exactly. Uh, you know, I, I'm just hearing excuses, Rebecca. Yeah, I'm, me too. I'm very good at that. He doesn't like so. The other thing I love to do, and I still do it, and the children do laugh at me, is drawing in steam on windows. Oh. Because I used to get told off for that when I was a yes. child. Like, oh, yeah, don't do that. Like, Leave yeah. a mark. <laughs> I, I like to draw horses. I've always done that. So I still do that. I still doodle. <laughs> Doodle the odd horse, yeah. There you are. There's lots. There of we go. Well, this is awesome, um, Ellie. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for being our hundredth episode guest, uh, which is a huge honour. But you know, you've given us so much today, and uh, I, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so I, much. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for asking me. I love that interview. Me too. It's great. I, we say this about almost every interview, but you have that, you come away with that feeling of positivity and, and energy, don't you? Even though we've just been interviewing someone and concentrating very hard, I always feel I have more energy afterwards. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, that was one of those which, you know, is uplifting. And uh, we hope it brought you pleasure too, listening to it on the Hobcast Book Show. Well, look, we've done 100 episodes. We're going to carry on. Next week, we are going to bring you the sights and sounds and smells of The smells? Halifax. How are we going to do that? I don't know. <laughs> uh, we'll do our best. And what does Halifax smell like anyway? Um, of endeavour, of sweat, <laughs> of... That's your armpits. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, we're, we're uh, appearing at... Uh, an event organised by R.C. Bridgestock uh, in Halifax next week. Uh, fellow Hobeck Yin, uh, Malcolm Hollingdrake will be there too. And um, we'll bring you some uh, some of the highlights yes. of that event, which is being it. held Saturday. Sadly, it's already sold out, so uh, yeah, we do apologise. No, no. Um, <laughs> and, of course, we can talk to Bob and Carol uh, Bridgestock about uh, their involvement in the next series, I hope, of Happy Valley, which is coming out soon, which, which the BBC are trailing big time. I've just started watching from the start because I didn't watch it before. No, it's brilliant. This is good. It's very good. It is brilliant. So uh, that's to look forward to. Um, in terms of where we take the show, well, look, we, we'd love to hear from you. Whatever thoughts you've got on what we can do in the future. Uh, you know, the beauty of doing a podcast like this is we've got the kit travels. It fits in a rucksack. We just go anywhere and we <laughs> make this thing. With yeah, so send us to, I don't know, the Caribbean or something. Yeah, why not? <laughs> why not indeed? Um, we will be you know, on our travels again in 2023 for sure, taking you to uh, various crime festivals and events and meeting our authors and all sorts of things as we come across them and, and think them through. We're, we're trying to put together something special for New Year's. But we uh, as yet, haven't really progressed that yet, but we'll sort that out. Um, but uh, as Christmas approaches... Yeah, time is running fast, isn't it? It always does in December. You get to the beginning of December and you think, I've got plenty of time. And then suddenly you're in double figures. And then, ooh, mm. 
But I ordered the, the Christmas turkey and the belly pork yesterday, and that made me feel a bit more relaxed about it. Well, I think we now need to order a whole load more because uh, my two boys will be joining us for the 23rd, it looks like. So, But it'll uh, be raw then. Yes. Okay, well, I'll sort something out. Anyway, um, this week coming, uh, yeah, we're, we're super busy again. And uh, don't forget that we released two books last week. Oh, we did. Tuesday was a crazy day. So Driven by Karina Swan is now out. And uh, also, Cooking the Books by the Hobeck team, our Christmas offering this year, an anthology of short stories and vignettes and recipes. And that raises money for the Trussell Trust, uh, who are a fa- the nation's leading food bank charity. So uh, we've sold quite a few of those. Please go to our website to order a copy. We can get that sent out yes. to you. And I will wrap it in Christmas paper with a little bit of ribbon. And you get a Christmas card too from us. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing is, of course, the postal strikes aren't making it easy at the moment you know to get what? books out. Yeah, so I sent the initial orders for cooking the books. I sent them on fri- last Friday, well in time for publication day on Tuesday. Most of them arrived on Friday, a week later. I, I support the postal strikes. So, you know, I'm not complaining about that at all because mm. I know how difficult um, it is for the everyday postal people. Yeah. Um, after talking to our lovely lady in the post office about it. But a week is quite a long time. So yeah. we do our best. So, you know, you know if mean, you're kept waiting. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you use a courier at the moment. You know, those things have, that we've uh, ordered have gone astray recently. <laughs> uh, I was hunting high and low for bottles of wine, which should have been delivered and all that sort of thing. Um, but we uh, we really wanted to say thank you as we mark this 100th uh, program, the 100th Hopcast book show. To everyone who has contributed, everybody who's listened, particularly. Absolutely, they're you, the important people. Everyone, you know, it means so much to us. And we're really grateful that we get to share part of our week with you um, and that you take pleasure and hopefully uh, and enjoy what we do. Uh, and it's really the one of the most fun things about running Hobeck is, is doing our podcast. It's a highlight of my week. I love it. I love every minute of it. Yeah, and it's, you know, a really important opportunity for just us to share what we do and why we do it, perhaps more importantly, um, and how sometimes it goes well. It goes well, but it goes wrong sometimes. Yeah, as recent episodes have been proving, it's, you know, it's not been easy in recent weeks, but we carry on and we're determined. But uh, from this little gathering of my family, as uh, little oh, Louis is still puddle of Hobart, Hobart. He's still drinking. He's 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 a hungry little mite. Oh, is he? Yeah, yeah. He's still at it. <laughs> um, it's been a real pleasure to share it with you, and uh, thank you so much for joining us every week and continue to do so. Please don't forget to go to our website www.hobeck.net uh, for details of all of our authors, all of our books. You can buy them there too. Uh, the audiobooks that we have out as well, and uh, of course, please. Subscribe to the podcast if you've enjoyed it, wherever you get your podcast from. So from me, Adrian Hobart. And me, Rebecca Collins. And the rest of the Hobarts. The Hobart, Huddle of Hobarts. The Huddle of Hobarts, the clan gathering. Thank you so much and have a wonderful and creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net 
You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Thank you.